Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Brian Moore, known as Pitbull during his time playing rugby for England and the British and Irish Lions, was always a sportsman with a hinterland. Our fascinating chat covered his other careers as a solicitor, wine columnist, TV commentator, manicurist and now psychotherapist, as well as plenty of other things besides, including food, politics, scaffolding, his respect for the French and why he can't stand Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Hello, Brian. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Pleased to be here, Tim. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's amazing. First time I've ever had rugby legend, journalist, commentator and wine lover on the podcast all talking about the same thing. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. I'm going to start with your beginnings, really, because your parents were Methodist lay preachers. and I'm guessing they weren't big wine drinkers. Maybe I'm wrong because they were pretty amazing people, weren't they? Well, they were pretty amazing people, given that in the 1960s, the early 1960s, which, let's face it, was not the... um, slightly enlightened time that it is now, they adopted, uh, besides two of their own children, four other children, um, two Hong Kong Chinese and two of mixed race. So it was a it was a rainbow family long before Angelina Jolie uh, ever um, was even thought about. So it's, um, yes, they were amazing, but no, they didn't, they didn't drink uh, hardly at all. I don't think they ever, uh, they, they might have gone to a pub for a special occasion once every <laughs> decade almost. And they used to drink a little bit of sweet white wine if it was at a at a, at a function. But no, they, they weren't drinkers at all, no. And you were more of a beer drinker yourself in your late teens, early 20s. Uh, you started to branch out the union from bitter into lager tops at one point. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, well, the thing is, in, if you live in Yorkshire, you get... Um, bombarded, and I was brought up in Yorkshire, Halifax in Yorkshire, you get bombarded with all sorts of colloquialisms, which they swear are, you know, tenets of faith, uh, not tenants, which Jonathan Gullis <laughs> mistakenly <laughs> thought they were, which is a lager, by the way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, things like we call a spade a spade, which is common wisdom in Yorkshire, which just means actually we don't listen to anyone else. Um, and, um, no, I mean, bitter, Tetley's bitter, especially, and, uh, Timothy Taylor's landlord was, uh, was the dear Webster's bitter. I worked at Webster's brewery before it uh, got taken over by Scotch and Newcastle. And, uh, so that was it. And I, I used to drink bitter before I went to university and uh, the bitter in Nottingham, um, uh, the, the, the home ales brewery, it was so ranked. I mean, it was, je- I mean, it was awful. Um, that I never drank it again. Now, when we're going home at Christmas, the first term, into the plummet line in Halifax of Bull Green, and John, the landlord, and he said, oh, yeah, I said, oh, Brian, what's the doing back here? I said, I'm back from university, John. He said, well, what does they want to drink? I said, well, can I have a lager top, please? And he looked at it for a second, and he said, Brian, he said, they know us very well that we don't serve cocktails in this bar, which thought... <laughs> encapsulated the Halifax humour quite well, actually. Um, so, no, I moved on from that. I mean, the way, funnily enough, the way I got into wine, it was a very strange thing. 
England, when I first went to, to training sessions there, they used to stay in the Petersham Hotel, which is a, a very nice hotel on, on, on Richmond Hill. It's got, it's probably got one of the best views in London of the sweep of the end of the Thames. And, it, and it's lovely. And, um, of course, in those days, when I first started, people were allowed and did drink, um, you know, not, not on Thursdays and Fridays, but sort of Wednesdays before games. But everyone used to go to the pub or have, have beers. And I remember looking at the wine list, and uh, it was quite an in- interesting wine list. Uh, and um, I didn't really know that much about it. And I said to the uh, sommelier, Jean-Michel, I said, um, how much is that bottle? And it was a bottle, I read something, it was a, it was a Palmer, it was a Palmer. And then I looked at Lynch Barge, and I said, how much are these? They said, oh, they said about £90. I said, Right. So how much is a bottle of house wine? Oh, I said about £30. I said, well, there's a squad of about 38 of us. So if you put that down as three bottles of house wine, no one will know, will they? And he agreed quite, well, I don't think he's wrong, because I don't think he's doing anything dishonest, particularly. Um, it was for the management to find out, and so they didn't. So I, I drank my way for three years through the Peterson wine list without anybody knowing, which was fantastic, really. Um, and then, and then he left and then the, the, his replacement wouldn't do it. So, so that sort of kiboshed that one, really. I mean, who, who were, who were the, who were the other wine drinkers in that England team? I'd imagine that Mickey Skinner wasn't one of them, was he? Well, look, <laughs> they were rugby players. They'd drink anything, to be honest. Um, I mean, people who uh, would appreciate Stuart Barnes, um, mm. uh, big, big red wine drinker, obviously more mm. cultured people, usually the backs, um, Jonathan Webb was a doctor. Uh, Jason Leonard, he, well, Jason would drink anything, including turpentine and white spirit, so he can't really count that. But I tell you what, he can drink. I once saw him do a bottle of wine down in one. And, um, well, I've done that, actually. I did that in, in Australia. That's another story of that. Um, but uh, so, so, yes, you've got um, some cultured and some not quite so cultured uh, quaffing. I mean, you know, did sportsmen drink more in those days than they do? No, I can't imagine England players drinking drinking wine. No, I mean, look, 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 Tim, Tim, sportsmen don't drink now. I mean, the, the England players now will probably, when they when they're allowed to, will have set times when they're allowed to go a bit mad. Uh, because I mean, it doesn't, you know, if you're super fit and you're a professional athlete like they are, a night on the beer might knock you back a few hours, but it's not going to actually affect your fitness. So. Mm-hmm. But they'll they'll only do that. I mean, I know I know players who who say they went to the World Cup recently wouldn't have drunk for the whole of the tournament just voluntarily because it, you know it, the the one night in you know a month uh, provided it's not too heavy it doesn't make that much difference or any mm-hmm. difference. But you know, regularly it's, it's just not compatible with being as fit as you can be. It's just not. Yeah. I mean, there's a wonderful story in your autobiography. Second, well, the first one was it's second autobiography in a way, which I love, Beware of the Dog, where you turned up pissed at a Harlequin's training session. Can you tell him remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, that was, that was, that was Winterbond's, Peter Winterbond's fault, who was Quinn's captain, by the way. And we went out at, um, we went out at lunchtime because he was a broker in the city, a uh, Eurobond dealer. And, um, and we just got completely hammered. And, um, you know, I was so fit in those days, I could, get to that state and we were both in this state um but um um dick best the coach realized what had gone on and uh he determined to make an example of me he didn't do it in any sort of way 
right? He just made me do one drill again and again and again whilst everyone else had finished theirs. Uh, and it was a, a tackling bag drill. So you had to sprint to one side of this uh, the, 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 the square, touch the base, sprint, hit the bag. It went down, you went down. You do it again and again. And by the end of it, you know, I didn't, I was determined not to vomit. And I done a kind of, and I just about, I just about avoided it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it taught me probably not to do that again, actually. Or not to get caught anyway, not to get caught. Yeah. And we've both got friends who are England cricketers and, and, you know, England cricketers, when they go on tour to Southern Hemisphere places, obviously South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, well, Argentina, they play cricket there, but you've played rugby in all of those places. Did you get to drink wine there? Yeah, I mean, as much as the cricketers, presumably. No, 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 nowhere near as much as the cricketers. I mean, you'll know, uh, and and this is not a secret, is it? You know, in the era of Botham, Alan Lamb, and what have you, um, they regularly used to, and this is in between between innings, used to go out. I mean, I I remember going to Samaritz once to play cricket on ice, which is I tell you, it's a brilliant weekend because what happens is um, they have. Uh, horse racing on ice and the lake there, it freezes over and you can see on Friday night all the Learjets of the super wealthy come in and they have a course made out and the jockeys um, are on, they're not on, ho- on horseback, they're pulled on sleighs, but it's racing around the thing. I mean, it's a phenomenal sight and all the, all the, all the wealthy it's a big social occasion, but they actually play, play cricket on there so they roll out a, a an astroturf sort of mat and that was the thing. And um, I remember well, I was in Alan Lamb's team. Oh, no, Robin Smith's team I was in. And I I was so – I missed the first ball by about a foot. Because I thought I, and, and the wicketkeeper laughed so much, he let the ball go through. So we got four for that. And Robin Smith was brilliant. And he explained to me that he quite often battered, um, you know, when he played professionally in his state because he would completely, completely – Hung over, uh, and still probably wildly under the influence, and so he explained that this wasn't a new thing to him. And uh, and of course, the thing is, we were stuttering all over the place. And the Indian team, who you who didn't drink, scored about four hundred, you know, off about forty overs, you know, and and which oh dear oh dear. So so yeah, I mean, in those days, it was it, my early my early career of drinking it was about volume. Uh, and of course, I remember, I'd just come out of being a student when, when that was the case. And students have changed now. They, they don't drink anywhere near as much. Um, um, and, and so, but the, the, the wine aspect it sort of developed and it developed along, uh, along with sort of the England career because um, you were going to places where you could put things on a bill, uh, which is always helpful, isn't it? And as I say, the, the piece from experience was one thing that started off on a very good footing, if you ask me. But going, you know, going to South Africa, going to Argentina, um, going to uh, Australia, New Zealand, you know, they're top, they're top wineries, aren't they? Top, top, top producers now. Um, and of course, um, you know, Australia, I was probably going there when they just about stopped the, you know, the, the, you remember the, heavy, the, the heavily wooded Chardonnays that yeah. you used to have to chew. Um, yeah. In between calls. Roosevelt Roxburgh. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember going to Hardy's Winery and seeing on the walls all these plaques about, you know, award-winning wines. And of course, we were being served something decent, but not award-winning. And I said, and I said, never mind that. What, can't we have one of those? He said, oh, yeah, mate. Just, 
Of course he can. As long as he likes telling anyone else. So again, in secret, our table got a few <laughs> bottles of award-winning wine. Um, but just but see, this just shows, and, and you people who are involved in wine will know this. The art of suggestion in wine is a very powerful thing, especially if it comes from an authoritative source. Because people were saying, why can't we have that? I said, well, we'll get, we'll get you some, all right? So what we did, we, we poured the, the ordinary stuff and just decanted it, sent it down. And they were saying, oh, this is much better. This is absolutely great. I said, you idiots. He said, I didn't say this. It's, it's the same, same stuff. It's the same stuff. But it just shows, doesn't it, you know, uneducated palates. You know, what is the point in, what is the point of you, what's the point of Andrew Lloyd Webber having a half a million pound if you can't tell the difference, you know, exactly. between a 200 bottle and a, you know, and whatever. I've never understood that, but yeah, I mean, we 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 had all sorts of things. I mean, uh, yeah. around that, the it, Aust- uh, Argentina was great because they were just emerging at the time as a wine producer when I went there. You know, so what we we now see uh, the Malbecs and so on, they were mm. just starting. But it was great to be mm. in on that. And I'll mm. never forget in in '95 when we went to uh, South Africa um, for the World Cup, the. Uh, the International Rugby Board, which is now World Rugby, the governing body of the whole world, thought it'd be a bit of a wheeze, a great thing, to have an opening lunch where all the teams got together. Now, this is a dreadful idea for the following reasons, right? <laughs> Everyone had gone to their respective parts of South Africa to base in, get in their camps, and they had to fly in to uh, the lunch. So we had to get up at six to do this. And the only redeeming feature was that we knew that the Welsh, who were also getting on the same plane, had to get up at four, which, which was the only thing that made it even palatable. And then we went to Stellenbosch into the Klein Constancia winery, which has, it was a good winery. Um, yeah. But because Douglas Green were the official wine sponsors mm. for the World Cup, the Constancia staff had to serve Douglas Green wine. <laughs> And I was saying, this is shit. Can we um, have the Constantia? Yeah, can't we have a Tiger? Oh, no, he don't mention that. Shush, shush. And, of course, <laughs> what turned out to happen, all the IRB representatives on the top table got smashed and had a great time. And, the and you, you know, we're sat on the table opposite the New, you know, the, the New Zealanders who we thought we'd have to play. And so the teams just looked daggers at each other. Not, <laughs> none of, none other. of them dared drink because... You know, if you want, you want somebody getting hammered because the other people there, and so <laughs> the rest of the time was just spent with teams staring at staring them. at each other, wanting <laughs> not to be there. You know, being yeah. given Douglas Green wine, and so, <laughs> and then I had to fly back. And, you know, it was it was a just it was a, it's a perfect example of our administrators. I've no idea Get it wrong. what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. Listen, I've got I've got to ask you about France because everybody thinks you hate France, and I watched. We rewatched that brutal 1991 World Cup quarter final again the other night. What a match that was, Christ. But you're something of a secret Francophile, aren't you? Especially when it comes to wine. Well, I, look, I'm, I just get that out of the way. I showed that, um, that uh, footage to Wayne Barnes, who's just retired, uh, who have 100 tests as a referee, one of the best referees has ever been. And he said to me, with modern technology and the way the game is officiated today, there would have been five red cards, four to France, one to England, and eight yellow cards. And we worked out that at one point, France would have had only nine players on the field. Um, in that game, nobody got sent off. And it was just, it was, it, I take, I, actually, I did enjoy it, but it, 
it, it was a it was a horrible game. It was a brutal. Was that the most brutal game you ever played in? It wasn't the dirtiest game, but it was the most sustained vi- sustained violence. Yes, it, but bearing in mind it was a World Cup game as well, and it was a very important game, and it was you know under scrutiny. But it wasn't quite like some of the midweek games in South Africa or or whatever, which were just not refereed properly, and you had to look after yourself because no one no one else was going to do. Um, but no, I mean, I've, I I I like the French in this sense, you know. Um, I quite often have not not often. I've had discussions, shall we say, that have become heated with people, you know, on the right of the political spectrum, saying, you know. Oh, I'm proud. I'm a patriot. I'm a British. I'm British. I'm British through and through. I'm English through and through. Or you know, I said, and I said to him, you know, do you think? Do you not think that say the French are proud? He said, yeah, but not as much as us. I said, well, that's not true. What do you mean? I said, well, I tell you, it's like this. I said, you can say what you like about how proud you are. I said, but do you actually do anything about it? So what do you mean? Hmm. I said, well, in France, you go to France, you go to a supermarket. And it's all French produce, virtually mm. all of it. I said, you go on their roads, see the amount of Citroëns, mm. um, you know, Peugeots, which basically are crap cars. When you when you compare to German and Japanese, I said, and yet they buy them because, and that's patriotism for you. You know, they'll pay their taxes so that they can have a better health service, so they can have a better education system, so they can have a better infrastructure. I said, that's patriotism. Said anyone can talk about this. Said you know what what happens when when they want you know when they want something they go out into the streets and burn lorries. Now I'm not necessarily advocating that you do the same, but the point is that they do something. I don't talk about yeah. it They're on Twitter and or X as it's now called. You know they don't go on there and whinge and complain and bleat about it. Yeah. They get out in the streets and say no, let's do something. Mm. Um, and I have a very sneaking regard for that because of you know there's a there's a belligerent side in me, which it, well, it's not a side really. It's it's it's, it's half the character, but um, it's uh, it, it's there. And I like I like the fact that you know in the Gulf War they were one of the few nations who said to to America, no, we're not doing this. All right, we're not doing it. It's wrong. Mm. And, and I and I have a lot of respect for that. It can that be, was the freedom freedom fries and all that stuff, wasn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah, no, Bush, it, yeah. it can be. It can be a you know it can be really it can be really annoying when you know you, you're. Mm. Your flight is cancelled due to the mm. annual or by <laughs> by annual air traffic control strike by the French. Um, but but again, you know, they they how many hours do they work relative to us? What is their yeah. pay relative to ours? And good quality of life. Right? And, and exa- exactly. Yeah. So um, it's a it's. I mean, we we've followed a consumerism in this country from America, whereby we are determined to have everything as cheap as we can now i'm not mm. being i'm not being um snotty about this you know if you are struggling for cash it is important that you get that but beyond that i mean my f- french mates my f- ski instructor mates you said to us, you know what is more important than the things you put in your body every single day mm. you know and and to and you look at you look at this this the stuff in, in in supermarkets and you think the quality is nowhere near what it is in france it just isn't yeah no, so, this is very true. So you've you've, yeah. you've got that. It's a uh, and and so yes, and 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 you go to France and it, and and England as England Britain has its beautiful parts. France has them as well, but but probably bigger. You know, um, mm. 
And fewer people, right? And fewer you people. Know, just, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as good. T- tell me something. I mean, some people may not know this, but in fact, nobody probably knows this unless they've read your book. You actually had two wine columns in your life, one on Today and the other on the Sun newspaper. So you're not just a rugby person. You've yes. written about that, wine. That, that, oh, that, that, often ra- that, that often raises a laugh. And I understand why. But I say to people, well, I didn't have to phone like anyone. And... Um, and I used to get paid for tasting wine, so who's the fool, really? And I tell you, this is about this has happened all my life about strange openings. It happened because I happened to be sitting at a lunch on a table next to Richard Stott, who was a former editor of the Mirror, and had become editor today. And um, I said, um, "This wine's a lot better than the crap they usually serve at these at these dudes." Because because if you've ever put on dinners, you'll realise that the way you make your money is on the markup on the wine. So if you have the lowest quality they could get away with, charge at the highest price you can get away with, you make money for, for charity or whatever. And then that's the yeah. thing. But he, and he said to me, he said, well, it should be. He said, because I bought it specially. He said, anyway, he said, what would you know about wine? You're from Halifax. I said, my, I said, I'm just an enthusiastic amateur. Now, I didn't think anything else of this. I had a great time. Because he, I mean, I, I had one Maxwell story, great Maxwell story, and he had t- 10 years worth. So he's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and we established that A. Maxwell was... This is a, Robert Maxwell. Yeah, course, was right? a, a, thug, yeah. a thug and a crook. Um, and his daughters turned out to be a crook as well. Um, but um, you've got... Uh, and, and so it was great. But I didn't hear anything, nothing else until that summer. We toured uh, South Africa in 94, um, prior to the World Cup. And Tony Roach, who would move from the Sun to the Today as their rugby correspondent, came up to me. He said, Brian, he said, you'll never guess what's happened. He said, said what? He said, um, well, like a lot of newspapers, uh, the Today are launching a weekend supplement because our rivals are doing it and we've got to do it. And they want a wine column, but they don't want it to be done by a master of wine because that's not our demographic readership. They want it to be done by an enthusiastic amateur and they want you to do it. And I said... I said, fuck off, Jack. I said, you're going to have to get up a lot earlier than that to catch me because I thought it was a prank they'd been put because players were always doing this and five people, you know, stuff like that. And, and so um, so they had to, in the end, they had to send uh, a communication on a headed fax notepaper, faxes as it was then, before I'd believe it. And the, and so uh, this is, this is, they just said, yeah, go, off you go, do one. And I said, well, um, they said, we want you to cover... You know, he said, look, it's, it's our demographic. Look, ordinary people, what, what do they buy in the supermarkets? What do they buy in the high streets? So we sort of set a, a voluntary limit of about 10 quid, which was okay then. Uh, still okay now, just about. Mm. Um, and I didn't really know what to do. So I, I sort of, I, I wrote to um, the, got all the PR numbers for the high street uh, chains and the supermarkets. And I learned very quickly to be quite specific because I said, look, I'm going to, the, the next four weeks, I'm going to write about these topics, these wines from this area. If you want to send me samples, um, please do. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to reserve the right to, uh, to, to give my own opinion on them. So you, you won't be able to bribe me or anything. But I learned very quickly to say things like, uh, North Italian reds because, um, the first one, I said Australian reds, and about 80 cases arrived. <laughs> so you were very popular with your neighbours, yeah, right? Yeah, I was the most popular in my mind. This is just what England's like. You know. I, the first time I tried to give a case of wine, because I couldn't store it all, 
And of course, a lot of a lot of supermarkets and high streets were stocking the same ones. So you'd get mm. six bottles of Jacob's Creek or whatever, mm. you know, uh, and you knew what it tasted like. So, so and I, you, I, I was playing then as well, and I, I couldn't drink it all, even if I want to. And I did do the tastings, you know, sippings and whatever. But still, there were, were scores of bottles. And when I got up to about three hundred, I just thought, I'm not. I can't keep all this stuff. I don't know where to put it. Um, you were still playing rugby, right? I was then, still right? playing as well. And I used, to, Richmond, I, used, right? I used to take it to work, but you always carry cases of wine, you know, on the tubing to work on the overground. So, so um, I eventually sorted it by getting it delivered to the firm. And so, what we used to do on a Friday night, um, we used to have a bit of a party, and I used to hand it round to everybody and say, "What do you think?" So, it was a, t- a consumer taste test as well, which was good. But the, this is this is what England's like. The first time I tried to give a free case of wine away. Um, in, uh, to in, my neighbour in Twickenham, I, I knocked on the door and I, I, and I, I offered him the wine. And he, first thing he said was, "What's wrong with it?" I said, <laughs> "I said, there's, I said, there's nothing wrong with it." I did. And then he said, "Have you got a planning application in?" I said, "No." I said, "No." I, I, I and he took it, but he shut the door, looking sort of round the door. You, you'd have thought I'd said to him, "Can I have sex with your dog?" Because he he um, it was just really strange. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it was a great. I mean, it, it was it was good fun. I got yeah. to know lots of people. I, you know, that was when I first met you, uh, Oz mm. Clark, and it was mm. very. It's a, no, it's a very interesting world because thing is, Tim, when I was a, when I was a lawyer, I was a litigator. So when when cases came to trial or or got near trial, I mm. got to become reasonably or fair, if not expert, because I had to write a, read a lot of expert reports mm. on all sorts of areas. Mm. You know, like, I, 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 can, I can tell you everything about scaffolding, which might not want to know. I, Don't. I, I, I once sat in the high court, um, the high court, um, when two experts were discussing wall crack widths and subsidence for, for a day and a half. So I know about that as well. Um, but, but similar to that, you know, you don't understand if you're not involved in the wine industry, just how big it is, how many people are involved, or what, or what sort of aspects there were. And it was a brand new world to me. And it was great because, you know, a lot, but it was also the case that people like you, people like us, there are people who embrace people like me who they knew didn't know much. I mean, and, and nothing anywhere near like they did. And certainly not the masses of wine who are, in fact, that, but were quite keen. To help people who just wanted to know about wine and enjoy it, and then we're yeah, and also we, we like talking about sport with you as well. And I mean, you know, you, you've, you're you're a sportsman. You've always been a sportsman with the hinterland. You know, you like reading. And listen, I want to ask you a couple of things about your other life because you stopped playing. I think in 1995, didn't you? That last season at, yeah. at Richmond. Yeah, you've done lots of things since then. I mean, manicurist. I mean, people don't know that nail bar, but also you know, journalism. Obviously, you've been an award-winning writer on the Telegraph, but also commentator. A lot of people would know you for your commentating. I just wonder. Do you have more respect now for journalists and commentators than you did when you were a player? Um, I have about the same respect for journalists, but uh, but I compartmentalise it in this sense. You know, sports journalists are are, are what they are. I have an ever-decreasing and diminishing respect for political journalists. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that just goes with the political system. Mm -hmm. Um, I I am not a socialist. I've never been a socialist. Mm. Um, I am left of centre. Mm. Um, I, I haven't voted Labour for 20 odd years. I left over the Iraq war, the party. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I, the I. way the way mm-hmm. it's polarized mm-hmm. now, I've mm-hmm. less respect for them because they are they are fanboys or fangirls or or just client journalists who've mm-hmm. lost all sense of proportion. They've lost sight of what they're supposed to do. When I hear editors bleating on to inquiries about the freedom of the press, I remind mm-hmm. myself that they don't use it to expose the post office scandal, which they've mm-hmm. ignored for fourteen years. They use it so that they can snoop on Harry and Meghan and things like that. I've just, you know, and I've got less respect for that. The, the sports journalism has got wider in terms of a number of, of, um, of people involved in the different platforms. I think the quality probably has gone up. Uh, the sports writing in terms of, of, of the book awards has significantly gone up because it's now an accepted you know, writing genre where it wasn't before mm-hmm. the William Hill. And the mm. sport, brief sports, which you won, right? With the book won, won that. I mean, that's amazing. Well, I mean, look, look, this is bragging, but it is what it is because it's true. Um, that is one of only two books to win both sports awards. That's the William Hill and the Brief Sports Book Awards in the same year. Uh, Harold Larwood for Duncan Hamilton. Mm. Larwood is he's the only other one, and Duncan Hamilton is a brilliant writer. He's won it, he's won it three mm. times. So to be in that mm. company, he's you know he's a huge one, and especially with. In uh, in my year, um, the Agassi book was written by a Pulitzer Prize winner. So, so yeah, that's, that's a pretty good book as well. I did a good book, yeah. So I, yeah. I beat that. And we, and, but it's all subjective. It's like wine; it's all mm. subjective. You don't like it. Mm. Um, I, I can't prove to you it's it's one. And that is an inter- actually, Tim. You know, it's an interesting fact, isn't it, about wine? Because we can talk and people can opine about the quality. You know, and and, and white wine should be sharp. It should be balanced. You know. They should be flint-like if the you know some or whatever. If you've got a sweeter palate, doesn't matter, does it really? Mm. Say what you like. Um, yeah. I don't like it, and that, that's the end of the conversation almost. Um, but, so I've got to ask you a couple of things about that are in the book, and I really enjoyed reading the book. I'd read the first one, but I hadn't read the second one. And the first one was written with Stephen Jones, wasn't it, the rugby writer? And the second yeah. one was all you, right? Yeah. Um, I'm really interested. You said that you hate swing low, sweet chariot. Just tell us why. You said it's the only thing that's worse is Flower of Scotland, right? <laughs> that that, well, that was a joke, by the way. Um, um, I know it was. Yeah, yeah. Scottish listeners. Yes, yeah. Um, the look. First of all, it's a Negro spiritual. Now, the subsequent claims that there, there are racist elements to this are not true. Um, now, it is true. I mean, it was once said about Twickenham that if you put a bomb under the West Stand you could remove an entire decade of fascism in one go. And there might be elements of that, but uh, this was a rugby club song before, because what people are saying is that, Mm. I remember playing against Ireland in 88. Um, We were were, were losing 3-0, and in the second half, we scored six tries. And Chris Otte, um, the Nigerian winger, scored three, a hat-trick. And Swing Low Sweet Chariot started from the North Stand and it got caught on and it was swinging. And so people said that was because Otti was a Nigerian, there are racist tones, it's a slave, you know, and it wasn't. This had been sung at Twickenham Sevens, it had been sung in rugby clubs, all of the Now, without any thought of the consequences, and that's a, gener- that's a generational thing. This was pre Oti, yeah? Oh, ma- ma- years before. Years before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was just to me, it was a drug. I hadn't, and I don't think anyone had even thought about the cultural connotations. And had they done, um, like now, it would probably have stopped. But at the time, it was just a song like 
the engineer and like you know lots of other lots of other ruby songs they were bawdy and whatever uh and probably of its time but it was not related to that incident so that sort of linked but i didn't like it because it just reminded me of drunken people who who didn't you know who didn't actually know all the words um to me it's a bit like sweet caroline which i also hate which is a makes me a, because people only know you know <laughs> the, uh, the sweet caroline yeah so good so <laughs> but, yeah you like can you sing the third verse oh no don't know that one yeah right <laughs> Um, well, most people don't know the second verse of the national anthem. Bet you do. I bet you did when you did. Yeah. Well, I know the fifth verse that they dropped, which was which was Hammer the Scots. I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit more, more about rugby. Is, is current England set up? You know, we came third in the World Cup. I mean, you know, good draw and all that. What, what would you do? I'm going to put you in charge oh, of the RFU. Oh, God, no, no. But, but how would you improve the England team right now? Look, Tim, I'm, I, I'm not trying to... Ev- I am trying to avoid it in one sense, only because mm. there are so many fundamental things that need to change for it to get to a state where it's as efficient as it should be. Mm. One, the academy system is completely broken. They're not playing enough games. They don't get in the first team, which is difficult when you're an academy player. They might be playing two or three games a year, which is not good enough. The second division, the championship, does not give them that process. The feeder system is not there. There needs to be a total and radical overhaul beyond what the championship clubs are saying, which is just give us more cash. You could look at a a solution like a draft system in America. Something fundamental needs to change rather than just sticking plaster of money. Mm -hmm. That needs to happen. When you've improved the youth setup and you've improved the pathway, then you will get more players playing in the the premiership Mm -hmm. and then it will get better. But it's a process which is all interlinked and there's no quick fix for it. You know, you can have better coaches, you can have better selection, but there's no quick fix for it. And people who say there is a quick fix, are don't they're either lying or they don't know enough. Mm. And you've, this is all against the background of a minority sport. And people, it drives me mad, people talking. I said, don't you understand that the turnover of all the premiership rugby clubs is the same as the turnover for Everton Football Club? One club. That is, well. that is, that is how big the difference is. And when yeah. they're talking about broadcast deals, well, you know, championship comes and say, well, we, we should get a broadcast deal. No one wants the broadcast. They won't mm. do it. They won't give mm. you money. The Six Nations, mm. this is worth X. It's not. It's not worth anything near that. Well, football mm. have just got 6.7 billion. Yes, mm. because this is a worldwide league. It's the best league in the world. You cannot think that way. You cannot think that way. And so, and, and what about allowing players to play for England who are in, based in France? Do you think that's something we could change? Well, I think you could have a halfway, you know, an accommodation whereby if they've played a certain number of games for England, then they're allowed to to be selected if they go abroad. But uh, those proponents of people saying a stupid rule, you should just let anyone play where you want. Look at South Africa. South Africa is completely different. They have developed a system over 30 odd years, which which has happened. The, The reason they can do that is they can produce the players who are good enough to go abroad and play. We're not producing enough, and we need a strong, a strong premiership to do that. If you let all the players who can go to France go to France, and it is mm. only France, maybe Japan, mm. Um, mm. then what becomes of the premiership? Who is going to want to watch mm. their team if their five best players are no longer there? And mm. I'm sorry, but people saying that have got to account for that, because how will you promote... How are you, for a, as a broadcaster, what will you do 
if the top 30 players mm. who are selected for England aren't playing in your product, no. will you broadcast it? No one will watch. Will you no. broadcast it? How much will you give it? You know, mm. no, you won't, or you'll give very little. That has an impact mm. on the clubs. Mm. It, you know, that developing going forward, academies and so on, it's all interlinked. So mm. there is, I'm sorry, but there are no quick fixes for it. It needs to be sorted mm. out root and branch. And mm. uh, at the moment, you've got a, a a relatively small pot because it's a minority sport. But you've then also, mm. remember this, 85% of the money for the RFU come from internationals. Mm. So you have to mm. have a strong professional game to win the mm. internationals to keep cooking them full. But, yeah. so if you don't have that and you don't invest in the international game, that doesn't work. But, given that 85% of the money comes to the RFU and the RFU is a, is not, it's a non-profit organisation, so mm. all the money that they make goes into grassroots rugby. You've got to fund the grassroots, otherwise you don't get the players to even start to be professional. So it's all interlinked. And everyone is saying, we want more money, we want more money of a, mm. of a, of a, of a pie which is nowhere near as big as people so, think it yeah. is. So it and it's needs not to be root, root and branch changes, yes. really, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. I, I love now. One of the things I like to also in the book is you describe yourself as more or less permanently dissatisfied. Um, that was 2010. You wrote that, or yeah. I think the paperback came out in 2011. Is that still you? Are you still more or less permanently dissatisfied? No, I'm, I'm, I am better. I, I, I am better. I mean, partly because I, I am I'm just starting to develop a practice in counselling uh, and psychotherapy for people who mm. are retiring, either retiring mm. for good from a job or sport. Mm or moving from one career to another. Uh, mm. People from the military, coming out of the military, who are institutionalised, mm. athletes who have got you know, two-thirds of their life left and will have to work. And I'm dealing with the, and trying to foreshadow, uh, ameliorate, and then deal with the uh, psychological consequences of retiring or, 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 or transitioning and change. I, I hesitate to use the word transitioning because it's got mm. very different connotations now. Mm. But, mm. you know, people have these problems they don't know they're mm. coming. They can't anticipate them. Um, it's to help people like that because every athlete I know has to a greater or lesser degree had some emotional or psychiatric um, or psychological problems. Now, they, they may after, have... I mean, after retirement. After retirement. Particularly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not... I'm not too, some of them have been very minor. Some of mm. them have died. Some of them have become uh, addicts and, all, and everything in between. But I don't know anyone who's not had any... Um, sequali. And if you mm. look at the military, there's a reason why they are 20%, 25% overrepresented uh, in the homeless, in the criminal justice system, in the mental health system, because they are vulnerable in a very specific way, an even more acute way, actually, than sports people, you know, when they suddenly leave, you know, a, a, a job uh, and are left with just, just to off you go. There you go. Um, and they struggle enormously. So that's going to be a big part of your life going forward now, because you've just done a degree, haven't you? Did a further degree in psychology, yeah? Yeah, I've got diplomas one, two, and three in counselling yeah. and psychotherapy. I've got the master's from Westminster in psychology. So um, I'm just doing a, um, um, a, a diploma for master's in uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. So um, then I'll be completely free to go. But it, 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 yeah, the answer to your, to your original mm -hmm. question, through the insights of this, I now understand you know, a lot of the reasons for my dissatisfaction. And I think part of it will always be there because it goes back to to the childhood trauma I suffered when I was sexually abused by you know, a teacher when I was nine. It goes mm -hmm. back to um it goes back to abandonment and attachment theories 
you know, which, which because I was, because I was born to a single mother, I was then in foster care. I then went to be adopted, um, and so they're all interlinked. Um, but now th- th- this is the same with the practice I'm doing with with athletes and, and retired uh, servicemen and, and and board directors and so on. Is if you don't know what to look for, it doesn't matter how bright you are. You're not going to find it because you simply don't know where to start. It's only by getting the insights into this or someone telling you and working through with you that you can mm. possibly start to understand it would be like it would be like trying to be a wine taster without without any guidance at all you know what yeah, do you look you for do how it. do you do it how are you, yeah. how are you supposed to come across that you just yeah. start off saying yeah. well it, 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 yeah and and so i i i'm getting much better at this um because it's but it's been a long process um you know yeah. the these these um scars were were deep deeply embedded and and mm. for a long time i had said that I didn't have any problems, but the defense mechanism was, and it was effective at the time, was to just not think about things and say, I'm not thinking about things. But then when you look back, you can look at the, you can look at certain behavior patterns of aggression or, or obsession and, and think, you know, yeah, I do understand now where that is. And, and unfortunately the sporting maxims for which you're rewarded, like don't give in, never give up, you know, they don't work in real, real life. You know, never stop. Well, what if you're an addict? What do you mean, never stop? Um, that doesn't really work, does it? So, so you, you yeah. I, I, it's 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 an interesting time. I, I think I'm, I'm in a much better place than I was ten years ago. I was going to say that. I mean, I've known you. I've been friends. We've been friends for a long time. And you know, I think you're in the best place you've been for for a long time. You seem very satisfied. You know, your four daughters. I think have brought a lot to your life. Just tell us the final thing. How do you relax? Is wine still a big bit of relaxation? You like a glass of wine, don't you? I mean, I've had the pleasure of sharing many bottles with you. Yes, I do like a glass of wine. Yeah. Unfortunately, not well. Not being a single, um, uh, an unmarried um, equity partner of a law firm. Um, I can't afford what I used to be able to. I mean, you know, I used to have a reasonable, not a, not, not a, not a, a huge vintage collection, but I could afford really nice wine. And, and simply now, there are not better things. There are different things I, I need to spend it on. But I, yeah, I still appreciate that. I tell you the great thing, Tim, is I now, I'm now at a stage where I can appreciate. I, I can't do what you do. I can't do vintages. I can't do that, but I can, um, Tell uh, you know a decent drop from a non uh, a non one, and I, and I and I can pick my way you know around around that, and that's a that's a great pleasure um, being able to do that. <laughs> Brian, thank you, thank you so much for sharing your amazing story. Uh, it's great that you're in such a good place, and looking forward to your next career. That sounds really fascinating with this uh, the, <laughs> the CBT, right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Tim, and I just like to leave you with this memory, Tim. You might explain. Um, off air to the, your your podcast listeners. Do you remember the time when we had the party in 1997 before the election results? That was a good, I do. Um, it was. That was. I got. I got. We had to drink wines from previous election vintages. Yes, but do you remember Oz going down into the his cellars I, on the three occasions? There was a Hamilton moment, wasn't there? When he lost, there was a Portillo moment, which I got to tell Michael Portillo about on a on a politics program, and I said. You know what I said, Michael? You won't realise this, but you were responsible for me um, being able to drink um, a really sixty-one Margot. Yeah, it? a really nice bottle of Margot. 
And then I told him what it was about, and his face dropped a bit. And I, did, I don't think you like that. But it's a great story. Oh, and the other one, who was the other one? Hamilton, wasn't it? Hamilton, yeah. chest for envelopes. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. yeah, anyway. Probably. Rugby legend, <laughs> journalist, commentator, and now psychotherapist. Brilliant talking to you. See you soon. Cheers, Tim. Well, that was a lot of fun. Brian is never short of an opinion, and he invariably knows what he's talking about too. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the geologist, Professor Alex Maltman. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.